Maybe you're at a loss for meaningful, life-giving words these days. Not information or arguments or agendas, but wonder and hope that meet your empathetic and curious faith with a fresh word. We are a guild of pastors always rooted in ancient text, but friendly to laughter, art, sarcasm, and a bit of sacrilege. Wander with us while our perspectives, our attitudes, and our faith are altered for a new generation of being the church. We are Alter Guild. We are Alter Guild. We are Alter Guild. We are Alter Guild. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is perhaps the most well-known woman of the Bible. She is a staple in Christmas pageants and has been featured in art and music and poetry and song. For those of us in the church, Mary is also complicated. She has been used to uphold a culture of purity, and different readings of her story have been used to put all who are not men in a separate and not really even close to equal role in the work of the church. In this episode, Miriam and I talk a little bit about the purity culture that has been so prevalent in many Christian communities and the ways that it has damaged people of all genders. Miriam looks at the story of the Annunciation when Mary is told she will bear the child of God and strips it of all its patriarchal influence, reclaiming the text and Mary's role in our history. I've always had a little bit of trouble with the story of the Annunciation, the story where the angel Gabriel comes down to Mary and tells her that she's going to bear God's child named Jesus, and she says, okay, let's do this. I want to love this story. There are so many beautiful things about it. There's the line, nothing will be impossible with God. There are Mary's words, let it be with me according to your word that have been memorialized by the Beatles and others. But there's something in me that has a serious problem with how this text has been used over the last 2000 years to create this pressure for women to be virginal, meek, and submissive. It sort of catches me and puts me on guard. There's this feminine submissiveness that's been so ingrained into our culture, particularly many of our religious cultures, and I think its counterpart is masculine dominance, also known as toxic masculinity. So Matt and I thought we'd talk a little bit about these two things, how they're related, what they look like in society and in our lives, and we're going to do that in 10 minutes, right? Yeah? You got it. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to solve it. <laughs> So, so I've talked a little bit about this culture of submission and purity and expectation that's been associated with femininity in the church for so long. Um, tell me about masculinity and that culture. Yeah, so I grew up in an evangelical church um, that taught purity culture plain and simple, right? Um, that it is about maintaining that purity and uh, once it's lost, it's gone forever, um, never to be regained again. Um, and as a, as a man, the experience of that was uh, almost entirely held by the woman, right? That the, the purity itself was the responsibility of women to guard. And then it was our job as men to help guard that for the women. Um, and so it was this over-responsibility um, that I think leads to that dominance, at least in my experience. 
um, that then it's the men's job to police women's bodies, whether it's in modesty or in dress or um, in many other ways. So it's a, to me, sounds kind of like a cause and effect thing. I mean, this is really a direct cause of a toxic masculinity culture. So all you have to do is look at evangelical churches, some of the mega churches in our country. You look up and there's this macho man standing on a stage guarding women's bodies and souls and the, the souls of everybody. It's like he's protecting the faith uh, by protecting his own sense of manhood. Um, and they're uh, excessive in their vision of what it means to be a man. And what it means is to have ownership have ownership of the household, have ownership of every sense of leadership and responsibility. There are marriage manuals written about this stuff that are um, just dripping in uh, pure patriarchy, um, that the man makes the decisions and the woman submits. And the sad part about it is it comes right out of the New Testament and Ephesians um, and some horrible readings that are in those epistles. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that image of a man up front in a church. Obviously, as a woman who is a pastor, that resonates with me. I mean, that's that's the image that people expect to see when they come into a church, and instead they see me. Um, and I, I also think that image resonates with me. I mean, I feel like I see that image on the front page of the newspaper most days. A, a man standing in front of some crowd of people trying to sort of guard and police and control whatever they need to guard and police and control. It's like it's our cultural image of, of what a Christian is. It's not, it's disembodied from, from a, a female perspective even. Right, right, right. And certainly I don't want to be essentialist and say, you know, men, men are powerful and assertive and women are good listeners, but I, I see this pressure um, to be masculine, meaning this is pressure to be assertive and you cannot show a moment of weakness because if you do, how can you overpower everybody else? And as a woman, this... It feels like a world I can't break into. It feels like I'm trapped by this um, this kind of invisible line. Uh, well, sometimes it's actually really visible. There are many churches that would not let me be a pastor. Um, but there are invisible lines that, that say I can be this assertive but not assertive past that. I can be this successful but not successful past that because doing that would make me too much like a man. And that's really painful. Yeah. So when thinking about this text, the Annunciation, from the perspective of what toxic masculinity and passive femininity look like in our culture right now, I'm kind of realizing that everything we've put on this text, every expectation, every sort of confine that we put women in from the words of this text are patriarchy. And when I read it, I am hearing it through the lens of patriarchy. So there's this line in particular when Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And then this is followed by Mary's line, here I am the servant of the Lord. 
And on first glance, to me, that sounds like rape. Coming upon you, overshadowing you, and then this passive, submissive, yes. But then I looked a little bit at the Greek language that this text was written in, and I looked at that word overshadow. The word is episkedadzo, and it means to envelop in a haze of brilliancy, figuratively to invest with a preternatural influence. And then I looked at the other times in the Gospels that that word is used, and it's used four times total in the Gospels. It's used when Jesus is baptized and God is naming him as God's son. And then it's used during the transfiguration when Jesus is illuminated and his disciples see that he is fully human and fully God. And then it's used with Mary. And then Mary's line, here I am, I wanted to know more about that because that felt so submissive and gross to me and I, I just could not get on board with it. And I read that here I am is a phrase that follows a tradition of prophets answering God's call to bring forth God's truth and voice into the world. So Moses, the prophet, in Exodus 3 says, here I am. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, says, here I am, send me. So if the angel Gabriel is telling Mary that she's going to be surrounded by God's love, by God's power, by God's holiness, and if she says, here I am, in a way that makes her a part of a long line of prophets, I can get on board with that. And I can also hear that this wouldn't have sounded like rape to the people who were hearing this story for the first time. To them, it would have sounded like she was a prophet. She was holy. She was joining this story of God's holy work coming into the world in a new way. The thing I want most from this text is to reclaim consent. We constantly hear the word consent in the context of sex and really in the context of rape prevention. And that's so, so important. But I want to reclaim consent not as something that I have to decide about when someone is overshadowing me with toxic power, but something that I get to think about and feel in my body when I'm surrounded with something holy, which I think is what this text is really getting at. When I'm surrounded by this divine cloud or shadow, how does that empower me to say yes to the things that are life-giving and good for me and for the world? Alter Guild is hosted by Meta Herrick Carlson, Matthew Ian Fleming, Miriam Samuelson Roberts, and Derek Tronsgaard, with edits by Matt and Derek. Today's episode was written by Miriam Samuelson Roberts, with music by Dotted Lines, Lullabies, Alice in Winter, and Aaron Sprinkle. 
You can visit our website at alterguild.org, that's A-L-T-E-R, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at AlterGuild. To listen to more episodes or to subscribe, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else fine podcasts are sold. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in tomorrow for our next episode. And in the meantime, go in peace. Listen, love, serve, and alter. Alter.